Love and affection for this gospel. Uh, remain standing, please. Turn with me to the book of Ruth, the eighth book in the Bible, beginning at the very beginning with the book of Genesis. If you move into the eighth book, you'll find the book of Ruth, and we'll be looking today at the third chapter as we move along in our study of this wonderful book. Last week, you will remember, if you were present here, that we... Uh, discussed what it means to, uh, to, for God to be the giver of providence, that the rich reward that is ours by the gospel of grace is that we serve a providential God. And that is a fancy term, friends. Providence simply means that God promises to watch over and take care of all that he has created, even the very details of our individual lives. That God is never up in heaven going, whoops, what am I going to do now? That he is providentially caring for you every moment of every day, working out whatsoever comes to pass for your good, as we just declared. He works all things out for his good. I wonder if you live in that rich reward. If you're anything like me, you challenge the providence of God moment by moment and day by day. Because God has a good, pleasing, and perfect will, and sometimes that will is not your will, and so what you desire more than anything else in the world is your will be done and not his will. If that describes you, then there is some good news for you right here in Ruth chapter 3, the best news that we could ever hear. Let's give our full attention to the reading and the preaching of God's word. Ruth chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. One day Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not find a home or find rest for you where you will be well provided for? Is not Boaz, with whose servant girls you have been, a kinsman of ours? Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash and perfume yourself and put on your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know that you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, take note of the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking, he was in good spirits, and he went over to lie down on the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man, and he turned and discovered a woman lying at his feet. "'Who are you?' he asked. "'I am your servant Ruth,' she said. "'Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer.'" The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All your fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am near of kin, there is a kinsman redeemer nearer than I. Stay here for the night. And in the morning, if he wants to redeem, good, let him redeem. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be, uh, anyone could be recognized. And he said, 
Don't let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. And he also said, Bring me the shawl you were wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and put it on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, How did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, He gave me these six measures of barley, saying, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens. For the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. What do we know about God's word? The grass withers and the flowers fall. But the word of the Lord stands forever. Father, again, your word is open before us. And so we would ask that your spirit would cause us to see and behold marvelous things from this portion of your holy law. For we challenge your will day by day and moment by moment. And we would ask, Father, that you would reveal that sin to us, that we might confess that sin to you and see our Savior who is there saying, Come to me as surely as I live. I will do for you all that I have ordained. And let us find rest there, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please, friends, be seated. Some of you may be aware or well aware of my story into ministry. My, my story actually started in a different denomination before I became uh, PCA. I, uh, I decided that after leaving, I was involved in, in music ministry. My college degree is in music education, and I wanted to be involved in church music, and I did for some time. And after Jennifer and I married, we, we went up to Flower Mound, and I served a small church there where we got utterly beat up, as lots of people in ministry do. We left that denomination and went to another denomination, not, not PCA, but another form of Presbyterianism. And we knew nothing about what it meant to be Presbyterian, uh, but I, uh, we found ourselves fitting right in uh, initially uh, because of this reason, or at least for me. I had been involved in fine arts through high school. I was in drama. I, I did lots of plays and then went away my first two years of college on a drama scholarship. Thought I might want to be an actor someday. I guess maybe that happened. I'm acting, not acting. But I, I was involved in all kinds of performances. And, and for me, sitting in this particular denomination, which really wasn't faithful to the proclamation of the gospel, it was really just 52 sermons about love, just go out there and love one another, I was mesmerized with the guy. I, I, I found myself infatuated with the position, and as he would move about in his costume, his pulpit robe from the lectern over to the pulpit, and he would do all of the things, I thought to myself, I could do that. I, I could do that. A matter of fact, I think I want to do that, so I began to tell my wife that I wanted to quit my job as a firefighter paramedic, and I wanted to go off to seminary, and she said, no, we're not going to do that. Six years, six years I wrestled with a, a call to ministry and I eventually stood before the session and convinced them that I was called and I went to the candidates committee before the presbytery and convinced them that I was called. Nobody ever asked Jennifer if she felt like I was called because she surely would have told them no way she didn't want to go off the seminary. But I sold our house, I took my wife kicking and screaming all the way down to Austin, Texas, where I attended seminary. 
And in God's good providence and his sense of humor, he put me on campus right next door to fire station number three. So that three weeks into seminary, when I began to hear a false gospel, which was really no gospel at all, and I found myself defending my faith in class instead of growing in my faith in class, I would go home and I would sit on my bed and I would hear those right next door and I would hang my head and literally, literally cry. Lord, what have I done? But God is good. God is good and his providence is even better. His providence, he worked out for good. The very fact that I forced his hand to do what I wanted to do. I, I believed that I was called to the gospel ministry and it wasn't happening fast enough. He wasn't convincing my wife fast enough and he certainly wasn't opening any doors for me to get there to do this job that I really wanted to do. And so I took matters into my own hands and I sold my house and I moved to Austin Seminary and I found that that was the worst mistake I'd ever made. But God, but God in his great providence, one day the fire chief calls me and he says, hey, Brian, how are things going? And I said, chief, they're going terribly. And he said, well, isn't that interesting? Dwayne just quit. And I was calling to see if you wanted your job back. And I moved back to Louisville. Jennifer said, see, we're done with that. We're over. And then the Lord, even, even greater in his providence, not only put us back, but then moved us into a Bible-believing, gospel-centered denomination. And some four years later, we packed it all up again, this time with the support of my wife, and we moved to St. Louis, Missouri, where I attended Covenant Seminary and eventually stand here before you as your senior pastor. I tried everything I could to do it my way, thinking, thinking that my way was right. And boy, did I have it wrong. And I've got to expect that that sometimes defines you, doesn't it? Sometimes God just doesn't work near as fast as we want him to work. Sometimes we think our will is his will, and we just need to convince him that his will is my will, and then he'll let me do what it is that I want to do. And we take matters into our own hands in order to try to fix it for him, because many times he simply isn't working fast enough. I believe that is what Ruth chapter 3 tells us. I was amazed this week in my study of this one chapter, the different perspectives, the different ways from which commentators come at chapter 3 in Ruth. There are only a couple that come at it from the perspective that I'm about to unpack for you. And that perspective is this, that Naomi challenges the, the providential care of her God. He is not moving for Ruth, her daughter-in-law, as fast as she thinks that he should, and so she take matters, takes matters into her own hands and tries to work them to speed up so that Ruth can find rest, she can find a home, as she says in chapter 3, verse 1, and that Ruth uh, would be well taken care of. I'm, I'm, I have grown very fond of Naomi in our study of this book. I, I, I think everybody's fond of Ruth or of Boaz, the kinsman redeemer. Everyone gets fond of Ruth just to see her loyalty and her obedience and all of those things. But I've become very fond of Naomi for this reason, because Naomi is Bryant and Bryant is Naomi. You remember back in chapter one, a couple of weeks ago, she had left the promised land with her husband and her two sons and she had gone to Moab 
She had gone to the land where she should have never gone. Her husband should have never taken her there. They left to the promised land in disobedience to God's provision that he would take care of them, that they could find rest in him. She challenged that. He challenged that, and they went to Moab. After her husband died and her two sons died, she hears that the land of God, the land flowing with milk and honey, has been blessed by God again, and she goes back to the house of bread, to Bethlehem, because God has restored bread to the promised land. But you remember she gets to Bethlehem and she says, don't call me Naomi. Don't call me pleasant anymore. Call me Mara. Call me bitter because doggone it. He didn't do it the way I wanted to do. And so she's back in the promised land, but she's a little frustrated with God because God has caused some problems in her life. But then she gets to our text that we looked at last week, chapter 2, verse 20. Remember when she looks out the window and she sees Ruth? Here she comes, just walking down the street. Remember that? Here she comes, toting all of that barley. And she says, in verse 20 of chapter 2, she says, Has God not stopped showing his kindness to the living and to the dead? She finally gets it. She had been disobedient and gone to a place she shouldn't go. She came back and she was bitter. And now suddenly she sees that God will take care of his children. And she finds great peace in that. And then we get to chapter 3. <laughs> you think, okay, she learned it. She got it. She understood that God would care for her and that she could rest in him. And that she would find comfort there and she would stay there. But then we get to chapter 3 and we find... She comes up with a scheme that's like none other, and we think, what in the world is she thinking? And then I say, duh, isn't that me? Isn't that you? We fail to trust in our God. We fail to rest in his providence. Look at verse 13. Boaz, acting as a kinsman redeemer, a type of Christ, says to Ruth, As surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Your heavenly Father today is saying to you, As surely as I live, I will do it. And therefore, what we are called to do, dear friends, in verse 1, to find rest. As that footnote says, translated, find a home in the NIV. Find rest in him. Verse 18, to wait in him. This is good news for people like you and me, dear friends. Chapter 3 of Ruth is great news. If you're like me and you constantly want to challenge God's good, pleasing, and perfect will because you think yours is better, then I've got great news for you today. Look how it begins. It begins with Ruth. And what Ruth, or I'm with Naomi, what Naomi tries to do uh, is to, to revise all of God's plan. God has a good, pleasing, and perfect plan, and she says, this is not good enough, and I am going to revise it. And she comes up with this scheme. She calls her daughter-in-law, Ruth, in, and she says, I want you to go down to the threshing floor. I want you to watch for him when he falls asleep. I want you to go lay down next to him, and then we, I want you then to lift his, uh, uncover, his uncover his feet. And, and we're just sitting there going, what? What is this woman saying? What is, what is her mother-in-law telling her to do? Back in chapter 2, verse 22, 
Naomi said to Ruth, it's good, it's good that you found Boaz, and it's good that you found his, his girls, his, his uh, female servants. Follow those female servants so that you will be safe, so that no harm will come to you. That's what she says in 2.22. But now she's putting her right in the middle of harm's way. She is sending her, a female, to the threshing floor where no females were ever allowed to be. And not only that, but in the middle of the night to lie down with a man who was not her husband, and not only that, to, but to uncover him. Yeah, we're thinking, what in the world? What in the world is Naomi thinking? How could she be, how could she think that this will was better than God's will, that God had promised to take care of her? She just said a, a little bit of go, how much she trusted and how, how God had provided for the living and the dead, and now she's challenging it with this the scheme of all schemes, revising the, the very will of God. I want to make a point for you here, friends. Listen to this. You remember, Naomi says, go, go take a shower. <laughs> go take a shower, wash yourself, put on a little Moab number seven and some clean clothes and slide on down to the threshing floor. And, and we're left thinking, what, what, what is she thinking? But Moab number seven is very important. She's a Moabitess. Listen, do you remember the accounts of Genesis 19? All of a sudden in the book of Genesis, we're confronted with Abraham who goes to, to take care of his nephew Lot, who found himself in Sodom and Gomorrah. And we read in chapter 19 the events of Sodom and Gomorrah and how Lot's wife turned into a pillar of salt when she turned back and longed for the city filled with sin. And so then he finds himself outside of Sodom and Gomorrah and he has two daughters. Now follow with me here. Uh, you read the end of, of Genesis chapter 19 and you're going, what were these two girls thinking? Their father Lot gets drunk, and on separate occasions, each of the daughter, daughters goes into his tent and has relationships with their own father to the point that he impregnates his own daughters, and one of the sons that's born in this incestuous relationship is named Moab. Moab. This whole line starts in sin, starts in incestuous sin, where you're thinking, what were these girls thinking? What is God going to do with this? And yet, God uses it to bring about his good. Ruth comes from the line of Moab. She then becomes the great-grandmother of King David. But we're left thinking, this cannot be. This simply cannot be. That two girls get their father drunk and, and then they become pregnant. And then we, then we get to this part. We say, she's, she's just following this same descendant line of doing all of the things that she shouldn't do. But it's Naomi who's sending, there, sending her there. And so we said, this just simply cannot be. But God promises to work it out for good. From the incestuous relationship eventually comes Ruth. And from Ruth eventually comes King David, and from King David eventually comes Jesus the Christ. He works it out for good, even when she sticks her fingers in it and tries to revise the whole thing. But look at, this, look at uh, Boaz's response. We get something quite different 
from him than we do from Naomi. Naomi goes, or Ruth goes down in the middle of the night. She covers, uncovers his legs and all of this. Verse 9, he wakes up and he says, who are you? And what does she do? She proposes to him. Literally, verse 9, she says, spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a kinsman redeemer. She is proposing to Boaz. Why? I think it's for this reason, because I think she was seeking to be obedient to her mother-in-law, Ruth. And she heard this scheme, and she's thinking, I don't want to do that, but I guess I am, because my mother-in-law has told me to do it. And so Boaz wakes up, and she's a little bit embarrassed about where she is. She is a female on the threshing floor. She's lying down next to a man who is not her husband. And so she says to him, cover me up. Be my husband so that I won't be so embarrassed about this plan that my mother-in-law has put together for me. And look at verse 11, what he says. Don't be afraid. I will do all that you ask. But then he doesn't do it, does he? In obedience to God's commands, he honors his heavenly Father and responds in a trustworthy way resting in the fullness of Yahweh because he knows God's law and God's law tells him this is not his wife and he cannot lie with her now even though he has this wonderful advantage to do so. And so he says, I will honor my heavenly father. He knows the law of God, Deuteronomy 25. The law that we get the leveret, which is a, which is a, a Latin word, which it says this, if a man dies and his wife is left, and then the brothers, uh, the brothers of the man who dies are responsible to marry the older brother, to marry the, the, the sister-in-law and produce offspring with her so that the brother that died, his line would continue. But that doesn't apply here because Boaz... Is not, uh, is not the brother of, of, uh, of Ruth's husband who has died. He had two brothers that we read about in, in chapter 1, and both of those guys are, are gone. That's why, that's why then Boaz can say, this kindness is greater that you've shown me. You haven't run, verse 10, you haven't run after younger men, but you've come to me, the old man. That's... That's why she could have done that. She could have gone for another man because Boaz was not the leveret. But he knows Leviticus chapter 25, the Hebrew word goel, from which we get our word to cover or to redeem or the kinsman redeemer. He knows that he is of kin to her, but he is not the closest kin. There is another one that is even closer, and so he honors God instead of violating her, which would have been violation. Even though he's got this perfect situation to do so, he says, I will do everything that you ask, but not yet. I'm going to honor my father. I'm going to rest in my sovereign, providential Yahweh, my king. And I will see if the one that's closer wants to redeem. And if he doesn't, then I will do it. Okay. Now, just like Ruth had this connection from Moab all the way back in Genesis chapter 19. Think about this. Here Boaz... Here Boaz is honoring his heavenly father and doing what God has commanded him to do, resting in his will. 
And two generations later, dear friends, Boaz being the great-grandfather of whom? David. And King David had the exact same situation, did he not? He's out on his rooftop one day and he's looking down and Bathsheba is taking a bath right next door. What does he do? Does he honor God? No. He takes matters into his own hand, hands and he gets her. He brings her to himself. He violates her. He impregnates her and then has the audacity to take her husband and put him on the front line and have him murdered so that he, David, the apple of God's eye, can take Bathsheba for his wife. And we are left going, what? How can this be? But God brings about the response for good. Does he not? God is never left up in heaven saying, whoops, what am I going to do now? Because we read David's confession in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your chesed, according to your unfailing love. Pour out your forgiveness upon me. Friends, this is good news for us. If you find yourself responding like Naomi instead of responding like Boaz, then God's forgiveness can be yours through genuine repentance. He will pour out his unfailing chesed, his mercy and unfailing love. He'll pour out on you in abundance. Now, that does not give us license to continue to sin David's son from Bathsheba ultimately died. There are consequences to your sin. You do not have license to continue to sin just saying, I'm just going to confess it and he'll forgive me yet again. But if you are genuinely heartbroken for your sin and you repent seeing your sin for what it is that you have broken the law of your heavenly father, he promises he will do it. He will forgive you of your sin and restore you back to the place of righteousness. That's the gospel. And that's exactly what happens to Naomi and can happen to you and me as well when we seek to take matters into our own hands. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. She's trying to find a home, a find rest for her daughter-in-law. She comes up with this off-the-wall scheme, revising God's plan. Boaz responds in obedience to God's plan, resting in him. And then we get to the very end. Boaz says, bring me your shawl. She holds it out. He dumps six measures of barley into it. And you can only imagine that Ruth, or that Naomi is back home just pacing the floor, watching out the window. What's going to happen? What's going to happen? What's going to happen? And then she sees, here comes Ruth. Here she comes, just a walking down. Now she's got this big old pack on her back. Commentators say that weighs probably about 100 pounds. And she's thinking to her, Naomi's thinking to herself, did she kidnap him and stick him in a pack on her back, bringing him into town? No, she comes in with all of this barley and Ruth lays it down before her mother-in-law and says, this is what Boaz did this time. And he even said, verse 17, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. And I can only imagine the still small voice of Yahweh, God himself, speaking into the ear of Naomi saying, Naomi, Naomi. Naomi. 
Come on. I got this. I got this. Rest in me. Trust in me. You don't have to come up with this cockamamie scheme of yours. Rest in me. I have got this. I have promised I will do it. I will take care of you. I will providentially provide my rich rewards for you. And so we have this picture of opposite from the way the chapter opens and the way the chapter ends. It opens with Ruth. She's showering, putting on a little Moab number seven and putting on her fancy clothes. And now at the end, she comes huffing and puffing, toting a 100-pound pack on her back, sweating profusely, most likely. She doesn't look like she did last night. But here's Naomi has this fancy plan. I, I must find rest for you. Go do this, this, and this. And now look what she does after she hears the still small voice. Naomi, I got this. Verse 18, Naomi says, wait. Wait. Don't do anything. Let's wait for Yahweh to move. Let's wait for Yahweh to do his good, pleasing and perfect will. We can rest in him. We can trust him. And she does an about face. He forgives her of her sin, restores her to the place of obedience. And friends, if you're here today and you are more of a Naomi than you are a Boaz, then here's the promise for you. Yahweh says, Ah, as surely as I am the Lord your God, I will do it. I will take care of you. And you can find rest in me. We've had a couple of congregational meetings the last few weeks, haven't we? Redeemer Presbyterian Church finds herself in a unique 2017. A changing 2017 in leadership of the church. I wonder, dear friends, are we going to rest in the providence of God? Are we going to say, he's got this, he's got it? Or are we going to step in and say, oh no, we got to fix this thing. We got to fix this thing and we got to do it quickly or it's all going to fall apart. He says to us, as surely as I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, I am your God. I will do it. Take rest in your Savior today and every day. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word is so refreshing to our ears, to our hearts, and to our minds. You can be trusted. We can trust in you because you are a God who promises that you have never changed. You'll never fail us. You'll never leave us. And even, Father, when we simply cannot see it, we pray that we would be found faithful in obedience to your law, to your commands, to rest in you, to trust in you, to wait on you because you promise that you will do it. So, Father, give us as the saints of Redeemer the certainty of this gospel today and then the certainty of this gospel tomorrow in our workplace, our schools, our homes, every day, every day, let us trust in you to know that you are working out your good, pleasing, and perfect will to the praise of your own glorious grace. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.
Let's respond. Dear friends, if you're seated on the inside row, would you reach forward, please, and grab that black registration pad under the seat in front of you? 